recovering from a cold. And I promise not to spit any further than the front pew. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 in the scriptures. You can also follow along uh, on the screen, but chapter 12 is on page 1043 of uh, your pew Bibles. And I'm going to read the verses 13 through 21, but I want to draw your attention for a moment to the uh, broader context. If you go to verse 1 of chapter 12, you'll see that there's a crowd of thousands who have gathered, so many so that they're trampling on each other. And it's really significant that Jesus doesn't focus on the thousands, but he speaks to his disciples. And he warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, that self-centeredness of uh, internal life. And then as you go down the, um, or or not eternal life, but the the self-centeredness of living with self in focus. And as you go down, verse 8, it says, you have to publicly acknowledge me, that is Jesus, before others, and then the Son of Man will acknowledge us before our Father in heaven. And then we're going to get to the parable that we'll focus on this morning. But if you go to the uh, bottom of the chapter to verse 33, there is a principle there. It says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And then verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's the broad context of this uh, particular parable that we're going to look at. So Jesus, surrounded by a crowd of people, so many so that they're trampling on each other, and out of that crowd, someone speaks. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be in your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to think for a moment about things in your life that are both helpful 
and hazardous. Both productive and dangerous. And such things exist. Your driver's license. Helpful. You can drive a car. You came here this morning. It, it didn't rain, but if it hadn't, you would have come in dry. But hazardous. Because when you're in a car, and others are in cars, you can stop, someone may not, and smash right into you. And your life might be over. It's helpful. Hazardous. Prescription drugs. Helpful when you have a cold or the flu or an infection. When you have pain, can bring healing, reduce the pain, allow you to function. But opioids, painkillers, can be very addictive to the point where you can lose everything in your life and then finally your life. Helpful, hazardous. Money. You may not have any cash in your pocket. If you don't, you probably have a credit card, a debit card. That seems to be the way it goes these days. When's the last time you actually gave cash to someone? But cash is a portable means of power. The more you have of it, the bigger of an influence that you can have. But you can begin to live for cash. You could become greedy and self-centered and egotistical. It's interesting, in the news this week, there is an 18-year-old girl in Ontario who, at the encouragement of her grandfather on her 18th birthday, bought her first ever lottery ticket. At work, she discovered she had just won $48 million. She called her parents. She said to her mother, they said I could go home. Mother said, don't you dare. They hired you for a particular number of hours. You finish your job. But I got 48 million bucks. Doesn't matter. Money can become a goal, or you can use it as a tool. It's interesting in the article, as I read it, her father is a financial advisor. That's probably a good thing. You know that most people who get rich really quick lose their money within two to three years and they're back to their former level of income. Her father is a financial advisor and, and her parents are encouraging her to finish her schooling because she wants to become a doctor and make a difference. See, that's not allowing money to rule you. Money can be helpful and hazardous. It's February. This time of the year, you're beginning to think about pulling all your documents together and paying for your income tax. You'll bring stuff if you don't do it yourself. I haven't done that for years. You, you bring it to your accountant, and your accountant will do it for you. And then you'll get some message from your accountant that either you're going to have a refund or you have to pay some, some extra. We're focused very much on money. 
And Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, be careful that the yeast of the Pharisees, this internal drive that they have to look out for themselves, does not influence you. Because you are not to be people who are living for yourselves. You are people who are to be living for the kingdom of God, to bring about a change, to bring about health, to restore the world to what God intended it to be. And then out of the crowd comes this voice, teacher, it's interesting in the Greek, it is not about rabbi, it is just teacher, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. In other words, you have authority, you tell him what to do, and you tell him that he should give me what is rightfully mine. I need to look out for myself. And Jesus responds coolly, Man, who made me an arbiter or a judge between you? And then he uses that as a springboard to get us all to think about the reality of money in our lives, both as a help and as a hazard. Notice that Jesus focuses initially on the man who asks the question or who makes the request. Tell my brother to share, give me my share of the inheritance. And then he says, to them. To them. He broadens it out. He, he uses this as a springboard to focus on the bigger issue. And the bigger issue is the influence of money. I have learned pastorally that when you talk about money, you can get into trouble. People get angry. People feel like you're intruding on their privacy, on their issue. And I understand that. We all have a certain sense of reserve. We'd all feel a little bit uncomfortable if someone came up to me and said, how much did you earn this year? Well, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. So I, I understand the, the issue of sensitivity. But I also know that the scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money that is the root of all e evil. It is the love of money. That is the root of all evil. And Jesus says in Matthew that we need to be careful about the deceitfulness of money. It can lie to us. If you have a lot, then you think, oh, everything's fine. Because now I have the ability to exercise power in my life. I can control things in my life. And I'm okay. Well, I want to say to you, cancer doesn't care. Heart attacks don't care, doesn't care. Shingles doesn't care. You've heard that ad, no doubt, right? Doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't care. We need to be ready to think through the reality of the influence of wealth in our lives. And Jesus tells a parable. 
He says, there was a, a, a man, he was a rich man. And his gardens, his fields, produced abundantly. I grew up on a farm. I know the reality of my father walking across the fields, judging how the crops were developing. I know the reality of a full silo and of a silo that's only half filled at the end of harvest season. I know the anxiety that it produces when you have a drought. I know of the losses that you can have. And I know of the celebrations that are there when the silo is full, the hay mile was full, the cows are all well fed, and the milk check comes in regularly. I know all of that. We should celebrate when our fields are abundant. We should celebrate when our business goes well. Jesus is not against prosperity. He is not against a well-managed, prosperous business. He is not against your efforts to develop your skills, to obtain a promotion, to obtain a higher level of income. I think he would applaud all of those things because you recognize and he recognized that you have potential and we ought to all live up to the level of our potentials. So he is not telling in this story uh, or he's not sharing a criticism about being wealthy or successful. What he is focusing on is the attitude that we have towards our wealth, towards the money that we have. This man in the parable says, wow, what am I going to do? And it's interesting, if you look at this uh, parable a little closely, it's, you know, he says, I will say to myself, in the Greek, and, and I know this is why, you know, translators work to smooth things off out. But in the Greek, it will say, it actually says, I will say to the soul of me. I will say to my soul, to the inner part of my being. And that's how that, this whole passage unfolds. I will say to my soul, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to expand my savings account. And then I'll be able to say, well, I'm well provided for. I can sit back, I can eat and drink and be merry because now I'm secure. And Jesus says, no, you are to be engaged in the work of God in the kingdom of God. Your abundance can't allow you to switch your life into neutral and to become disengaged and to become focused simply on yourself. Now I can eat and drink and be merry because my life is secure and I don't need to worry or think about others. And then Jesus says, the father says, you fool. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. You fool. Jesus has warned about saying 
fool, although it's a different word here in, in, from Matthew 5. But he says, you know, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Jesus, you fool. Or God the Father says, you fool. This night your life will be required of you. In the Greek, this becomes really clear. It's in the vocative voice. And if you are a parent or if you are a grandparent, you have used the vocative voice. Let me illustrate. As a grandparent, you see your grandson, I'll call him Sam, sitting on the highest peak of the roof of the house. And you'll say, Sam, get down! And then Sam will get down. And then you'll say, Sam, how could you be so stupid? That's what happens here. You fool. How could you be so stupid? This night, your life will be required of you. And Jesus says, no. I invite you to think. He's focused on his disciples. He's focused on his followers. They haven't yet come to the full understanding of what he's about because he hasn't yet died. He hasn't yet risen from the dead. He hasn't yet ascended into heaven. But we stand on the other side of death and resurrection and ascension. So we are called as his disciples to think about our attitude towards money. Is it a goal, an achievement, or is it a tool, something to use? Is it a goal that we could just simply harvest from so that we can eat and drink and be merry? Or is it a tool that we can employ to advance the kingdom of God? And as you would read further in this particular passage, Jesus very much focuses upon the reality of the kingdom of God. And, and where the kingdom is, that's where life is being restored. The familiar song, which I've quoted to you before, I have come to bring good news to the poor, to tell prisoners that they are prisoners no more, to tell blind people that they can see, to set the downtrodden free, and to tell the good news to those who indeed are downtrodden. Remember, we, we looked at John the Baptist uh, some time ago, John the Baptist wondered, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus said to John's disciples, you go back to tell John what you have here, what you hear and what you have seen. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor of the good news preach to them. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But think now, what does that mean? I have come that you might have life. Uh, does that mean simply that you might have comfort? That you might have ease? That you might have no worries? I don't think so. For God, life is defined in relationships. 
I have come that you can have relationships. Think for a moment about the Genesis story. When, when God said to Adam and Eve, now there is a tree of which you may not eat. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, right? You will surely die. What does it mean to die? Well, as a congregation, you've been here several times in the last recent times for funeral, and I think you'll be here again tomorrow for a funeral. What does it mean that people die? Their heart quits beating. Their brain quits functioning. They can no longer lift a finger. They're dead. Is that what happened to Adam and Eve? No. Their hearts kept beating. Their brains kept functioning. They lifted fingers. They moved their feet. When God came to look for them, they hid because they were naked and they felt shame. So what does it mean that they died? It means that relationally they were separated. They saw that they were naked and they felt shame. They heard God come and they hid themselves. God judged them, drove them out of the garden. And the creation, he said, would now groan in travail and we would have to earn our living by the sweat of our brow. That was the reality of death. Death comes in a separation of people. Of people from, I think it comes on four levels. A separation from God. A separation from yourself. Many of us have struggles with ourselves. We hate ourselves for our thoughts and our conduct. When we say to each other, how are you? We'll say, fine. Stands for frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted, but I'm fine. Even when you've just had a fight in your family and your son has walked out and slammed the door and said, you're nothing but a workaholic. I heard that once. I'm fine. We engage in denial all the time. We're separated from others. We hate them because they're of a different ethnicity, a different language, a different color, a different religion, a different shape. And we're separated from the creation. My, my grandson just did a paper a couple years ago. I found it fascinating. He looked at the big areas of plastic waste in the Pacific Ocean, bigger than the state of Texas. Just waste that people have thrown off of ships or dumped on the beach. Plastic bottles goes way down. We need to do something about that. When, 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 and I think, you know, I, I'm not a golfer, but I, I know people drive golf balls off the end of cruise ships into the ocean, and I wonder about that. Is that good for the environment? 
must feel great to be able to see a splash. But I wonder about that. We're separated on four levels, with God, self, others, and the creation. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I want to heal the relationship between you and God. I want to heal the relationship between you and yourself. I want to heal the relationship between you and others. I want to heal the relationship between you and the creation. And you can use your funds to do that. You can lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You can be rich towards God. But you can't be disengaged. If you are disengaged and you think it's all about me and it's all about self, you're nothing but a fool. You're nothing but a fool. That's pretty harsh. The question we all need to ask, is it true? Is it true about us? Is it true about me? And so what does he want? Well, he says, be rich towards God. Be rich towards God's desire in your life. And what is God's desire in your life? Well, that you restore relationships with Him, with yourself, with others, with your creation. And that you live life abundantly that way. And how do you do that? You see some of God's image bearers I mean, there is this slide that was on before the service, and I guess it's the, the focus of the, the offerings for this month about Abba Canada, about helping people in the whole adoption business, in the reality of engaging with God's small image bearers and giving them a home and giving them a sense of security. You can be rich towards God when you see a homeless person and reach out to that person, talk to them. <coughs> you can be rich towards God when you take courage. I was just privileged to go back to Ontario and I conducted a funeral of a good friend. His son was born with a cleft palate and he was totally deaf. He did not have the inner ear construction that he was supposed to have. He was profoundly deaf. I was at their house when their son was about 11 or 12 years old. It was a Saturday. And on that Saturday, their son conquered something. He learned to ride a bike on his own. He was 12 years old. But his inner ear didn't function like other kids is in her ear. And then I learned from his father, he says, remember the words of Helen Keller. And the words of Helen Keller were this, when you are deaf or when you are blind, you are cut off from things. When you are deaf, you are cut off from people. After the service, the son, who is now 40 or so, maybe 45, did what he normally did. He would sit in a corner and look at a book because he couldn't talk to anybody. And one of the members of the congregation went and sat beside him, opened up her cell phone, 
sent him her um, email address, and they began to exchange messages. I think that's being rich towards God. Rich towards other people, building a relationship, drawing someone out of the isolation of deafness. How can we be rich towards God? Well, John Wesley, who was the founder of uh, what we now call the Methodist congregation or denomination, John Wesley said, a thing that ought to distinguish Christians is that we ought to know how to die well. In other words, death shouldn't hold a great fear for us. We should be ready for it. So let me ask you some searching questions. Do your children know your desires for your funeral? Have you prepared a will? Have you signed a power of attorney? Have you made ready your household for what is inevitable in your life? You should. Because when you die, it's too late. You are rich towards God when you embrace the reality of death and you prepare for it. You become rich towards God when you think about the reality of money and you understand it. I, I like playing with uh, the minds of my grandchildren. Just recently, uh, I had a conversation with my 15, soon to be 16 year old granddaughter who will in May be 16 and will be another driver on the road, both helpful and hazardous. I said to her, I said, if I, if I gave you a choice, which one would you take? If I gave you a certified check for a million dollars, or if I gave you a copper penny and promised to double that penny every day, the value of that penny every day for 30 days, which would you take? Oh, she said, Gramps, I'd take the million dollars. I'd say, yeah, I thought you would. Well, it was a dumb mistake. Just do it on your calculator after church. Point, point zero 0.01 times 2, and then times it every times 2 for 30 days. Ron, how much will it come to? Well over a million. It will come to... 10 million nine, I got the number here. Uh, 10 million, 737,418 dollars and 24 cents. If you took the million dollar check, it would have cost you 9,737,418 dollars and 24 cents. All you because you don't understand money. Credit cards. Helpful, but if you can't pay them off at the end of the month, hazardous, it's 22% interest. Did you know that? It's better to have a line of credit, pay it off. It's dangerous, credit cards. And we ought to teach our children and teach ourselves about those things. And when we do, we are rich towards God because then we can manage our income and we can promote his kingdom. And he won't call us fools. 
He'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So the question is, as we listen to this parable, are we listening? Are we responding? Are we laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven? That's the call that Jesus gives to us today, to be wise, to be understanding, to be engaged, not to be foolish. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the teachings of your word. Your word teaches us about life, about relationships, about money. We need to take all those things seriously. We need to be thoughtful about them. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come amongst us, live in us, drive us to our knees, help us to be responsible, help us to be engaged, help us, Lord God, to serve you well, to promote your kingdom, to bring praise and honor and glory because you are a God of generosity and compassion and mercy. You take care of us. You watch over us. And we are deeply thankful. And we pray that we may also be profoundly responsible. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.